0: Washington's first presidential veto created a powerful weapon in the commander-in-chief's armory. And it's one that has been in the news lately because President Trump just issued his first presidential veto.
1: Yes, indeed, Brian. And it's all part of the push and pull surrounding funding for the border wall.
0: I wanted to know where President Trump's veto fits into the big picture of presidential vetoes throughout the 20th century and beyond. So I got in touch with Jeffrey Engel. He's director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. I started by asking Jeff what presidents have to consider as they wrestle with the question to veto or not to veto.
2: There's actually, I think, two fundamental tracks that you have to think of, and then other questions spin off from there. Um, the first is the question of, do I not like this legislation because I believe it violates the Constitution or because I don't like the politics? Hmm. And we've seen lots of cases, to be honest, more in the 19th century, but, but some in the 20th, uh, in which the president says, I don't believe that Congress is reading the Constitution correctly and I have the authority to make them think back, think about it again or really <laughs> decide right. if they want to do this. That's, that's sort of level A. And, and that's rare. Um, Level B, question B is, am I doing this for political reasons? As I say, I disagree with the the policy. And then it gets really tricky because the president at that point has to go through essentially a a logic chain where he asks him or herself, if I say no to this, will it get Mm overridden? Is my congressional support strong enough to back me? And of course, if it's strong enough to back me, why did they send me this legislation in the first place? And I think, frankly, the president ultimately has to decide uh, why Congress is sending him or her something that could be vetoable. Right. Because one of the things that's really fascinating is that, you know, we focus on the big cases, you know, the ex- the exciting constitutional dramas where the president and the Congress are pitted against each other over big ideals. The truth is the majority of, of vetoes in the 20th century are essentially Congress passing something they really don't want to and they know the president <laughs> will veto. Um, And that way they can go to their constituents and say, hey, we did our part. Uh, And if that's the case, and the president would know that, um, he can pocket veto it or he can just decide that he wants to reject it out of hand and everybody walks away happy.
0: So tell us what some of the most important, uh, the most notable or most notorious presidential vetoes have been over the last century.
2: Some of the, the most famous cases for example are you know Ronald Reagan's decision to veto sanctions against the apartheid led government of South Africa uh-huh. in the mid 1980s and that was a really interesting and difficult decision and controversy because obviously uh, apartheid was not only unpopular in the United States it had become uh, in many ways a cause celeb among people in the United States and and the opposition within the United States and the world community but America in particular was growing on a, on a weekly basis as more and more people realized either a apartheid was terrible or B, I should say apartheid is terrible because that's good politics for me even if I'm not concerned with it and ultimately, There builds a momentum in Congress for mass sanctions against South Africa beyond even the sanctions that the United States had already imposed. And Ronald Reagan, who frankly uh, was interested in keeping good relations with South Africa for geopolitical reasons and also, I would say, had never made um, African-American civil rights one of his – which, of course, was a a group that was concerned with the South Africa issue. He'd never made African-American civil rights one of his primary issues. So he argued that the sanctions that Congress was imposing on South Africa were far too sweeping, far too broad.
0: And now we've reached a critical juncture. Many in Congress and some in Europe are clamoring for sweeping sanctions against South Africa. The Prime Minister of Great Britain has denounced punitive sanctions as immoral and utterly repugnant. Well, let me tell you why we believe Mrs. Thatcher is right. The primary victims of an economic boycott of South Africa would be the very people we seek to help. Most of the workers who would lose jobs because of sanctions would be black workers.
2: This despite the fact that leaders throughout South Africa, uh, Desmond Tutu, for example, the, the most famously, begged him. To impose these sanctions recognizing that yes, we need to we will suffer but we need the whole country needs to suffer if we're going to make the government change. Ultimately, Reagan therefore vetoes a sanctions bill um, in order to say I want different kinds of sanctions. And the fascinating thing about that is that nobody realized that's what the argument was about in the regular media. That is to say, People in Washington knew that this was a debate in essence over what type of sanctions we want to have. Throughout the country, it was understood as a debate over whether or not Ronald Reagan is a racist, uh, which is to say perhaps he doesn't care about South Africa and apartheid. And it was a wonderful, from a historian perspective, wonderful example of how the large public broad discussion was completely divorced from the actual policy at hand, even though it was one of the biggest policy discussions of the day.
0: And what was the ultimate outcome? Did he get a more tailored uh, sanctions bill?
2: Uh, no. I, as a matter of fact, his veto was overridden, yep. and so consequently, Congress got its way on that one. And you know, in, in many ways, that allowed them to uh, everybody to turn around happy again. Uh, so Ronald Reagan was able to say on a political level, and more importantly, on an international diplomatic level. Listen, I I did my best for what I thought was good policy. Right.
0: I went to the mats. What can I do if Congress is going to override me? This is all I got. And, you know, the argument that my hands are
2: tied doesn't always sound and resonate well overseas when a president offers that because the president of the United States is the most powerful person in the world. Right. But this is a case where the president can actually point to the Constitution and which line of the Constitution says, here's where it says my hands are tied. Uh, So that's a much more powerful argument for him overseas. And Congress got the sanctions it desired.
0: If you look back, and you don't have to look back that far, vetoes used to be a lot more common. I, I think FDR is the kind of world champ. I mean, yes, he served four terms or almost four complete terms. But... He's got hundreds and hundreds of vetoes, to his credit. Six hundreds, yeah. Six hundred. So what's the deal there? And if I don't have my history wrong, he had a Democratic Congress for a lot of the time. (laughs) Exactly.
2: Exactly. I mean, you know, so we naturally think that the president's going to have more vetoes when the other party controls Congress and therefore they're butting heads. But as you point out, FDR had a Democratic Congress throughout his entire time in office. Yep. And what that did in, a, in an interesting way was essentially turn the veto into not a way for the president to stop legislation that he didn't like most of the time, but rather to stop legislation, as I mentioned earlier, that everyone didn't like. There were uh, numerous instances where the Congress passed what we would consider to be basically Petty resolutions, you know that that this one individual needs compensation, or that they need to change the name on a post office, something along those lines. Uh, And the and and discussion was held with the Congress that, you know, this will make Congressman Bob happy if we pass this, but we don't really want it. So the president can veto it, and and we're all happy in the end.
0: Well, if you step back a little bit, does the use of vetoes or Frequent use of vetoes. Does that tell us anything about Roosevelt's attitude towards executive power itself? Or, as you put it, these are kind of trivial things and it's just kind of internal face saving measures.
2: You know, Roosevelt is fascinating in, in the regard that you just mentioned, his view of executive power, because he believed, I I think, in expansive federal power. In fact, in his initial inauguration during the height of the depression, he explains very clearly to the public that he is going to ask Congress for legislation to meet the current crisis, the depression. But if Congress does not give me what I want, I will ask it then for executive powers. And I will assume executive powers. Basically, you know. If the rest of the world is recognizing in 1933 that some crises are best resolved by having strong men in charge, I'm willing to do that if necessary. And uh, throughout his time in office, there were many moments where Franklin Roosevelt essentially made the executive decision to move the country in a direction, even as he's trying to persuade Congress, but before he had actually persuaded it. Um, sometimes, obviously, uh, that was pushed back by Congress, most famously, of course, I think, in the his plan to pack the court to get more of his allies on the court by expanding the size of the Supreme Court. And then ultimately, I think more importantly, his decision from 1937-38 on to integrate the, the United States more into the global problems that resulted in World War II and to rearm the country in preparation for that, uh, he did a tremendous amount of executive Uh, reach in order to move the country in that direction despite, if not congressional opposition, then at least congressional
0: ambivalence. We know that recent presidents, uh, recent being the last 30 or 40 years, use the veto pen a lot less than presidents in the first half of the 20th century. What's going on there? I think
2: the fundamental reason is because the president is engaged in the discussion process, the formation of legislation, the sausage making, if you will, from the beginning. And therefore, we see fewer and fewer bills get passed by Congress that the president hasn't already signaled that he's going to approve because he's been his, his team have been part of the negotiators. And connected to that, directly connected to that, is the, the rise of large omnibus bills that, as I say, 75 pieces of legislation within one act. Uh, that the president's people with Congress have negotiated all 75, and you're not going to vote on it until you get all 75 approved. So the president may disagree with one, agree with 74. He's not going to get it across his desk till the omnibus bill is passed. And the the days when Congress would essentially pass important legislation to make sure that you know Mrs. Baker from Smithfield continued to receive her husband's pension that doesn't go through Congress anymore. And so there's, there's as long as the issues are huge, the chances that the president are going to, is going to get a piece of legislation that he dislikes to his desk are are increasingly small.
0: Jeff, does the public have an attitude about the use of a veto generally? Uh, or is it always very much connected to the specific legislation that the president is vetoing? You know, I, I think the
2: public is really quite satisfied with a president using his or her veto pen, because that's a constitutional, easily understood constitutional right mm-hmm. the president has. That's, I think, one of the things that made the recent and ongoing brouhaha over President Trump's initial veto, so the only one of his legis- of his uh, administration thus far, such a fascinating political. Rorschach test. President Trump wanted a, a border wall. The Congress would not pass legislation that would give him the border wall he wanted. So he declared that he was going to use funds already appropriate by Congress for purposes not appropriate by Congress through his executive authority.
0: Under his emergency powers. Yes. As authorized by congressional legislation, according to Trump.
2: According to Trump. Well, that's it. According to Trump. And whether or not you agree with the president or not, the fundamental point is that no president has ever done that before. Mm-hmm. Um, No president had ever assumed the authority. And there, Congress came back and voted against the president's use of that executive authority. However, not by two-thirds in the Senate. Therefore, President Trump's use of emergency powers, unprecedented use of emergency powers, stands even though the public looks at Congress and says, didn't Congress just vote against that twice? And more importantly— Didn't members of the president's own political party come out strongly against his use of executive authority in this way and then wind up voting in favor of his use of executive authority in this way? Those are the kind of cases when the public watches the tennis ball, if you will, being batted back and forth multiple times and – People seeming to play on both sides of the tennis court, if you will, that the public does not like because that's not necessarily a clear use of executive authority. That's, again, to use the phrase, a swampy use
0: of executive authority. So do you think this decision, even though uh, Trump won this particular legislative battle, at least for now, uh, do you think this will hurt Trump politically? No, I think it's
2: going to help Trump politically. Um, in fact, this is a great example, I think, of a president using his veto power for personal political gain in many ways because President Trump clearly wants to run his 2020 campaign with immigration and, let's be, let's be clear, being extremely strongly against immigration, especially from the southern parts mm-hmm. of, the, of the Western Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants that to be the signature issue. If he actually gets what he wants, which is a huge wall across the southern border, even if Mexico pays for it or not, if he actually gets that, he doesn't have that to campaign on. Uh, And so I think the more that he is able to do things that tie up this issue, and more importantly, even better for him, if the courts intervene and rule that
0: his action was unconstitutional. That's where I was headed. It's almost like a second veto.
2: Yes, and, but it's a second veto that, that the president would welcome, I, I think, politically in this in this case. And so if if Trump can not only make the argument that the liberals are making you unsafe on the border, but those darn liberal judges are making you unsafe by exerting their own authority to try to curtail my exertion of authority, um, as long as that issue is, is one that he can rail on, I think he's a happy camper.
0: That was Jeffrey Engel. He directs the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. He's co-author of the book Impeachment in American History. Joanne, as the Washington whisperer, (laughs) tell me what our first president would have thought about the idea of one of his successors, Franklin D. Roosevelt, vetoing 635 pieces of legislation. 635. Count them. Wow. Washington was unsure about producing one veto. You know, so
1: 635. (laughs) I mean, but, you know, if you think about... <laughs> the first presidency i mean washington as the first president he was pretty nervous about really doing anything that was a major assertion of power there there hadn't been a president before so something that we now take for granted although maybe not 635 <laughs> times for granted but still you, you assume that that's a power of the presidency and uh washington did not necessarily assume that that was something that he would be doing during his presidency um one of the things that I always find really moving is actually Washington's copy of the Constitution because he, you when you see it it's I think Mount Vernon owns it and when you look through it what he does really carefully and it's related to this idea of the veto he goes through and in the margin wherever the president is responsible for something he wrote president <laughs> So he was really really carefully delineating you know <laughs> what are the things I'm supposed to now, do? Are,
0: are, are you sure he wasn't just rubbing it in as in, I'm the president? <laughs> that would be me, now the that, president.
1: That, that would require an exclamation point, I think. <laughs> president. But, but you know, he really was thinking about power, right? The yes. presidency, thats that's the main point of controversy with the presidency is that it's one person with a potentially enormous amount of power. So – How did people respond, Brian, to the 635? I mean, were there people screeching about executive power? Well,
0: they certainly charged Roosevelt with that, but I'm not sure that the number of vetoes would be at the top of the list compared to, Mm. let's say, changing the number of justices on the Supreme Court, increasing it to (laughs) fit your legislative agenda. And uh, my own sense is that Washington might have been far more appalled that there were 635 pieces of legislation. And that really underscores the kind of legislation that FDR vetoed, which very much comes out of the middle and later parts of the 19th century. And that's, as you know, Joanne, all of those what were called personal bills, legislation that Mm -hmm. actually had to do with one individual giving them a pension (laughs) and that kind of thing. So, My own guess is that Washington might have been much more appalled by that uh, than the number of vetoes. Roosevelt viewed the presidency very different, uh, and, of course, he lived in a very different time. And here's where the international context uh, may tell us a lot. I mean, let's think about some of the leaders of other countries at the time that Roosevelt was president. Let's see. We've got Hitler... We've got Mussolini. We've got Stalin. I mean, Roosevelt very much viewed himself as surrounded by strongmen who could do Mm. what they wanted, do it quickly, and not do it with a lot of back and forth in conversation. And It was only shortly after Franklin Roosevelt's death and after World War II that Congress was labeled a horse and buggy institution in the atomic age. Right. Mm. And so there was a strong feeling throughout the 20th century, really starting with Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. It wasn't just Franklin Roosevelt that, you know, this Congress thing, this deliberation thing, this debate thing, this openness thing uh, that Mm. might not work so well in the 20th century.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Interesting, because at the beginning of the government, what they were worried about more than anything else, of course, was power, was, you know, a channel of power seemingly issuing from one person. I mean, it's why they debated at least for a while at the Constitutional Convention having some kind of a panel of executives and not one particular person because they were so worried about the precise thing that you're saying, in a sense, is necessary in the 20th century.
0: Let's turn to the 21st century. Mm. I'd love to hear your thoughts about president trump's first use of a veto what would george washington have thought (laughs) about well i don't know what he would have thought about the wall but what would he have thought about um, the extension of emergency powers to in essence reverse congressional appropriations
1: wow that there is a question i never imagined being asked
0: Well, neither did George, so this is perfect.
1: That's true. Well, you know, on the one hand, I think Washington and any number of other individuals would be stunned at that kind of assertion of power. Interestingly, probably another aspect of the veto that Washington would have picked up on is the fact that it got so much public attention. Washington was extremely sensitive to how the public Hmm. was viewing his actions Hmm. and his assertions of power or lack of assertions of power. And so in a sense, he might have felt some empathy towards someone making an assertion as much as he might not like it and seeing the public so engaged in responding
0: to it. I I have a bonus question for you.
1: Oh, no. Okay.
0: Did Washington sign the first veto with a Sharpie? (laughs)
1: I can definitively say no.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Joanne.
1: Well, so I'm going to turn this now back on you, Brian. You made me compare Washington and Trump. (laughs) So how might FDR see similarities or differences between the situation he was engaged with and what we're seeing now with President Trump?
0: Well, I think one similarity, Joanne, is like FDR, Trump not only sees strongmen around the world, Frankly, he's quite attracted to them. Pundits have talked about his bromance with some of them. Mm. Um, Now, of course, he has many options to choose from. It's not so long ago that we were talking about democracy breaking out in the Middle East and democracy breaking out around the world. The difference between Trump and Franklin D. Roosevelt is that I think Trump is trying to be more like These strongmen and Roosevelt was trying to figure out a way to save constitutional governance in a world where strongmen Mm. could operate pretty swiftly, pretty quickly without public consent. He was trying genuinely to thread a needle.